Well, that being said, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. If you're using one of those pew Bibles, that's on page 1160, 1160, looking at Ephesians 6, continuing our study in this uh, beloved passage called the Full Armor of God really the climax of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, and let me just read through this section, starting at verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, we come here to worship you, to learn about you, to hear from you. We confess, Lord, that this week we have strayed from you. We have wandered from following you. We've gotten off the path. And Lord, we're coming here this morning because... We want to draw close to you again and hear from you and to follow you the way we should. Lord, some of us come here this morning with huge burdens on our shoulders. Tears are just about to to break through our eyes. We're so in a state of uh, turmoil and and crisis, God. Some of us here just barely holding it together. God, I pray this morning for those brothers and sisters here who who are stressed out and are hurting, God, that you would minister to their hearts this morning. Those who are grieving those who are, who are in anxiety because of things in their life. As we study your word, Lord, speak to them. God, some of us here have things from way back in our past that continue to haunt us. But we believe, Lord Jesus, that you can heal the wounds of our hearts. Lord, some of us are here this morning with decisions, and they're weighing on us, and we need direction. And so we pray that through your word, you would speak direction into our lives this morning. Maybe there's some of us here who are just kind of investigating Christianity, and, and we want to know whether or not this, this stuff is real or if it's just a uh, sort of a head trip that some people are on. Is Christ really the Messiah that we've been singing about? And so, Jesus, I pray that you might speak to those folks' hearts, that it wouldn't be any words or argument from a minister, but that it would be your Holy Spirit revealing the risen Christ to them. And so, Jesus, we have so many needs this morning, we could go on enumerating them, but we come to you because we believe that you are the Lord, that you have what we need, that you are what we need. And so as we open up your word this morning, we don't want to just learn some more information. We want to hear the voice of God speaking to us. So speak to us now through the Bible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
The Christian life is a war. It's a spiritual war. From the day a person becomes a Christian until the day they die, they're constantly on the battlefield. There's no R&R in this battle. There's no shore leave. There's no going home. It's a constant war. If you're a Christian, you sleep on the battlefield. You go to work on the battlefield. When you turn on the TV, you're on the battlefield. When you exercise or relax or go to school, you're always on the battlefield because the Christian life is a constant war. The Christian life is not a crutch. If you're looking for a religion that's a crutch to help you through life, don't look at Christianity because it's hard. It's a hard faith. It's hard to follow Christ, not only because of who I am, but because of the spiritual opposition that comes against me from our enemy. And that's what we've been studying here at the end of Ephesians. We've looked at who the enemy is. The enemy is the devil, Satan. And when I say Satan, I don't mean that in some mythological, symbolic sense. I mean, there is really a Satan. There really are forces of evil in this world that we can't see that are are working against all that is good and all that belongs to God in this world, and, and that's opposing us in our Christian life as well. Hey, just become a Christian and you'll find out about it, okay? That's the way it works. Because as soon as you start following Christ, there's this opposition that comes against us that cannot be explained naturalistically. And then we saw here in our text as we've been studying that if we're going to fight this spiritual battle, we need to put on God's armor. For those of you who were here last Sunday, there's a few hardy souls. Um, we actually had about 50 folks here in the service. It was amazing. All you sort of nuts with your SUVs uh, plowed through the snow and came here. And, and so we, had, we, we studied how you fight the spiritual war. And we saw that the spiritual war is fought by putting on the armor of God. And the armor of God, we saw last week, is the character and righteousness of Jesus. That's what the armor of God is. It's to put on the armor of God is to put on Jesus. It's to put on his likeness and his image and his, his beauty and his righteousness. Well, what we're doing this Sunday, we're looking at verse 14. We're taking the zoom lens and, and focusing in on specific parts of the armor. In other words, we've gotten the general idea of putting on the character of Christ. But now what, what Paul's going to do is he's going to just start spelling out some of the aspects of Christ's character. And that's what the different pieces of armor are. And, and we're going to look at three of them this Sunday. We're going to look at verses 14 and 15. And then in the following Sundays, we'll look at other pieces of the armor, other aspects of Christ's character that we need to put on. So this Sunday, it's verses 14 and 15. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So we're going to look at the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and the readiness that fits our feet from the gospel of peace. Now, before we dig into these little pieces of armor, let me just make two caveats on interpreting this passage, because sometimes there's interpretive mistakes that people make when they start studying this. One interpretive mistake is the mistake of over-interpreting the armor. What I mean by that is sometimes Christians get really into the armor, like, all right, the breastplate. What does a breastplate do? Well, a breastplate protects your chest, and your heart is in your chest, and so it protects, and you can kind of sort of get carried away. And, and I think what I'm saying is that it says the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, but I think Paul could just as well have said the belt of righteousness and the breastplate of truth. In, in other words, there isn't something special about the piece of armor that pertains to the virtue. 
They're not necessarily connected. He's just using imagery. And he's just picking some weapons uh, and, and some armor, and, and he's, he's taking some Christian virtues and applying them. So, you know, be careful of sort of running amok with the helmet and what does the helmet protect and, you know, kind of going off like that. These are Christian virtues. He's using imagery. The second caveat, I would say, interpreting this is, is to realize that this is not an exhaustive list. This is a representative list of some of the Christian virtues. It's not everything we need as a Christian. It's just some things. Again, he's just trying to make his point. Uh, love is not listed here, is it? Where's love? But, I mean, come on. Love is, is the preeminent Christian virtue. You know, where's the gloves of love? Where, where's, the, uh, where's the spear of humility? You know, where, where's the, uh, the dagger of uh, kindness? I mean, you know, it should all... You know, so this is not all of the Christian virtues. It's just some Christian virtues. So I, I just want to say that because I think sometimes I've heard preaching and teaching on these, this armor, and, and it gets really in-depth. I've seen pastors with big suit, actually suits of Roman armor, and, and you know, they're really talking about the armor, and you know, it's like it, it's a metaphor, okay? And, and you don't want to take it too far. The key is the Christian virtues, that if we're going to fight and stand against our enemy, the devil, we have to clothe ourselves with all of Christ. And here's some parts of Christ. That's what he's saying. The first part he wants to talk about is truth. Verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Or literally it says in Greek, stand firm having girded your loins with truth. Now you know what the loins are. The loins is from about right here down to about right here. Anything in this area is, is sort of, it's the middle of your body, is, is your loins. And, and so a, a, a warrior would gird themselves, they'd wrap themselves. You know how like guys who work in a warehouse or weightlifters, they put on a weight belt, you kind of gird yourself up to sort of strengthen yourself. Well, that's what warriors would do too. They'd wrap around a leather apron and, and strengthen themselves. That's the imagery here. And so it's wrapping ourselves with truth. Truth, of course, uh, here, I, I think, is talking about truthfulness. That's what he means. In other words, he's not saying gird yourself with doctrinal truth, even though we should, even though that's important. But I think what he means in this specific verse is with truthfulness, with honesty. And we need to be truth-telling people, just as God is a truth-telling God. It's his armor. God is truth. He always speaks the truth. And so we need to imitate the truthfulness of Christ. Now, this is very important because, you know, our enemy is a liar. He is a virtuoso liar. What does it say about the devil in the Bible? They say he's the father of lies, right? He, he, he lies so well. He's the best liar there ever was. In fact, he lies about lying. He says, oh, it's not a lie. It's, it's just a white lie. He says, oh, it's not a lie. It's just, it's spin. It's spin, you know, and this group spins it this way, and this group over here spins it that way. And, you know, don't look for truth, like as if there really is any truth. It's just interpretation. Look, it's not a lie. It's just covering for a friend. That's all it is. He says, yeah, go ahead and tell that story to your spouse. Just, uh, you know, don't mention that part. But, but tell the story. Just leave that out. You know, it's sins by omission. Or he says, yeah, tell the story. And while you're at it, you know, maybe inflate that part a little bit and dramatize that part to make the story a little bit more exciting. And so he's always trying to find ways to get us to bend the truth because he's a liar. Because he knows that once we start lying and, and deceiving, then we are in big trouble. Because once you start lying, lying kind of has a life of its own and it just 
takes off and, and runs away from you. It's, I, I sort of uh, visualize it this way. It, it's as if we, we are unguarded with truth in our loins and Satan stabs us with a, a dagger of deception. And this dagger is poisoned. It has toxin on the blade. So he gets that toxin inside of us and then he just steps back and watches it work. Because once you start lying, well, it, it just takes care of itself. It, it just runs amok. And so I, I lie to you, and then I remember, oh, yeah, but you know her. And if you talk to her, you're going to find out I was lying. So I need to go over here and talk to this person to make up a lie and cover up that. But then, you know, the next thing you know, you're trying to remember who you lied to whom about what. And it's, it's very difficult. You're trying to keep this, this sort of double life going. It's exhausting. As Mark Twain said, uh, the great thing about telling the truth is you don't have to remember anything. <laughs> you just tell the truth. And... And you don't have to remember who you told what to. It's just the truth. But, but lying is like that. And Satan knows if he can just get us started on the path of lying, then it, it'll take care of itself. And, and once that poison runs through the system and does its work, eventually the truth comes out. And once the truth comes out, that's when everything falls apart. You think of uh, uh, some big lies recently. Uh, Enron, WorldCom, Tyco. These big companies, these giants that have fallen. And, and it starts with a little lie. It, it starts with a little massaging of numbers, a little cooking of the books to make figures look a little bit better. And eventually, the co- no one knows it, but the company's going under, and then it's bankrupt, and then people are going to jail, and, and people are losing their pensions. You know, it's, it's a disaster. And it starts with just little lies. And so because the devil knows that, because he knows the power, the snowball effect of deception, he tries to get us to lie. And, and that's why we need to gird ourselves with truthfulness. Because our God is a God of truth. God is truth. He always tells the truth. He never lies. Everything God says reflects reality 100%. Or we should say reality reflects whatever God says 100%. Um, God, if he says he's going to do it, he does it. He always follows through. There's no distortion or twisting of the facts with God. And so if we're the children of God, if we're his followers and we're going to put on God's armor, then we need to be people of truth. We need to mean what we say and say what we mean. We need to do what we say. We need to be honest and direct with each other. We shouldn't be people who delight in gossip. Because, you know, the thing about gossip is it's a distortion of truth. By the time it comes around to me, you know, it's a telephone game. It's not what it was originally. And if I keep passing it on, then I'm participating in a system of deceit in a system of truth warping. If I make a promise to you, I need to try to fulfill it as best I can. I need to be a person of integrity and honesty. And when we gird ourselves that way, we protect ourselves from that poisoned uh, dagger of deception. There's a story uh, I read about a guy who was practicing honesty. He was a student in Chicago at Moody Bible Institute. Now, some of you know Moody Bible Institute. It's a, it's a Bible school in Chicago. It was started by the evangelist D.L. Moody, and uh, it's still there, and it's a great school. It's, a lot of people go there to prepare to be missionaries and pastors. Anyway, there was this student uh, back some time ago who was riding one of the streetcars to get to the institute, and he got, hopped on the streetcar, went a couple stops, and then hopped off, and in that time, the conductor had never got around to collect his fare, and so the guy goes to school, and then he was certainly convicted. He was like, wow, I didn't pay my fare. That really wasn't right. And so this student goes all the way to the, the train station, you know, where they all the park all the trains, 
and he finds that conductor, and he says, oh, you don't know me, but I was on your train today, and I saw you, but you never got around to getting my fare, and I never gave you my fare, so here it is. The guy looked at him, he's like, you are a fool. Just keep, you know, keep the money, you know? And he says, no, no, you really need to take my money. And the man said, hey, look, it was my fault I didn't get around to collect it. And the student said, no, it was my fault that I didn't give it to you. The guy looks at him, he says, you're one of them Bible Institute kids, aren't you? <laughs> and, and I read that story, I thought, boy, what a compliment to that institute, that that place would be known for that character of individual. And so here's this situation. You, you know, you, you get a free ride, and, and you think, I, mean, I would think, what's the big deal? Just Let's not be so scrupulous that we're so worried about paying every fare. But, you know, that's how the devil starts. He doesn't start with the big lies. He starts with developing a character of deception, which is a slow process. See, the devil's a long-term investor, all right? He's a long-term investor. He's not out for the big, quick, one-day stock trade sale. He, he want, he's looking long-term, and if he just gets us through a little bit today, that's fine. A little bit tomorrow. I mean, he's got the long term. He's looking at 70 years of our life, and he wants us to become corrupt individuals down the road. And he's willing to take any little thing he can in the meantime. And so that little decision to pay the fare, yeah, it isn't a big deal. It's just a little money in the grand scheme of things. But it's a decision of a, a path to take. And those little decisions are who we become over time in the little things, not the big things. But on the other hand, because that guy decided to be honest, to gird himself with truth, to stand against the devil's temptations, he not only stood firm, but in a sense, he also gained ground for the kingdom of God because he had a chance to, to be a testimony and a witness to that conductor. And who knows what impression that made on the conductor? And who knows how God is going to use that little instance in the conductor's life to eventually bring the conductor to Christ? That's what God uses. He uses a little bit from you, little witness over here, a little bit over here. And all of us, God orchestrates to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. And so we have to gird ourselves with truth. We need to be a truthful and honest people, which is a constant struggle in a world of spin and advertising and hype. But secondly, look at the second piece of armor. We must put on the breastplate of righteousness. The belt of truth, and secondly, the breastplate of righteousness. Of course, God is righteous. In fact, God is holy. Righteousness here is talking about moral purity. It's talking about righteous character. God is holy, and so we need to be holy. God is righteous, and so if I'm going to put on God's character, I need to be a righteous and holy person too. Not just a nice person. Not just a good person. A lot of people say, well, I'm a good person. I'm a nice person. No, no, no. God wants holy people. That's different. God wants righteous people. You say you're a good person, but are you a righteous person? Are you holy? We kind of go, ah. In fact, we're so uncomfortable with that, we use that pejoratively. We talk about self-righteous people and holy rollers. But God doesn't talk about that way. God says, look, I want holy people because God is holy and righteous. That's a different story. And so I need to put on righteousness. Now, what's righteousness? Well, it, I mean, it's, it's a comprehensive term, really. It, it covers a lot of bases. It's about living the way God wants us to live. And so righteousness can be applied to, you know, how I treat my employees at work, how my employees treat me. I have to think about righteously uh, how I speak, what things come out of my mouth, what thoughts go through my head, what attitudes are in my heart. Righteousness uh, is 
related to how I deal with conflicts with people, which inevitably come. Righteousness affects how I relate to the, the poor and the needy. And so righteousness is a really comprehensive term that covers a lot of bases. In fact, as we've been studying Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, uh, for those of you who have been with us the last several months, really chapters 4 through 6 are about righteousness. It's one way you could summarize it. It's all different aspects of righteous living. So, so we could talk a lot about righteousness. I, I just like to focus on two for instances this morning. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Two examples of righteousness in our lives. I'm going to go for two things that are pretty significant in our lives. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. I love this verse. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 3, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Why? Because these are improper for God's holy people. If I'm going to be holy, I can't even have a hint of sexual immorality or of greed. And, and those are two big areas where Satan tries to get us to live unholy, unrighteous lives. Uh, our finances. We're always talking about balancing our checkbooks and getting out of credit card debt. What about using my finances righteously? That's a different concept. To, uh, to, to use my finances and my resources to be a blessing to others. Satan wants me to be greedy. He wants me to go the other direction. And so, you know, when I'm driving in the car, I turn on the radio and there's some ad comes on for something that I, I guess I really need. And I'm listening to that radio ad. And then I start, you know, daydreaming. I'm like, boy, what if I had that? That'd be great. I could never afford that. But wouldn't it be great if I hit the lottery? Hmm. What's the lottery at nowadays? 300 million. Wow. Case. Oh, if I had 300 million dollars, what is that paid out over 40 years? Wow. You know, and you just start fantasizing about is hypothetical, and you start fantasizing you know, just about what, what you could do with, with that kind of money, and you start thinking about, oh, I'd love to buy this, I'd love to purchase that, and, and you know, that's, that's greed, and of course that's what he wants us, just to go down that path, to have our hearts be filled up with things and possessions, to make money into a God, and to make things into a God, and we all struggle with that. And, and so he wants me to put down my Bible and stop lingering on Jesus, and instead to pick up my catalog and start lingering over surround sound theater systems and computers and, and you know, uh, clothes and cars and, and whatever it is that, that uh, tickles your fancy. But instead, we need to say, no, no, I'm going to be righteous. That I'm not going to worship money, I'm going to worship God. You've got to make a choice. Jesus said you can't serve both God and money. You've got to pick one and the other. can't be both. And I need to worship Christ and honor him with my finances, to let my finances be holy. And by being holy, it means that I'm not caught up in consumerism and materialism, and it means that I'm using my financial resources to bless others, those who are in financial need, to give to churches, to give to missionaries, charities, that kind of thing. Letting people use my house and my car and whatever things that I have. Developing a lifestyle of charity is what God wants us to move toward. Or what about this other area? Righteousness in our finances. What about righteousness in our sexuality? You see that in verse 3? Not even a hint of sexual immorality. This is a big one because, um, frankly, our sexuality is such a powerful aspect of our persons. I've talked about this before, but, but I, I often say that sex is like nuclear energy. It's like nuclear power. And if it's harnessed and used the right way, it can be a wonderful thing because God gave it to us. God invented it. It's a funny thought, but he did. 
and he gave it to us, he put it within us. And so if it's used for godly purposes, it's a wonderful thing. But if it's let loose and uncontrolled, it's as destructive as nuclear energy set loose. Our sexuality is like the Mississippi River. It's this wonderful thing that can be used for great purposes if it stays in its banks. But once it spills out over the banks and goes beyond God's bounds, then it becomes a destructive force instead of a, a helpful force. And so we have to you know, be righteous in our sexuality. Of course, the story that comes to mind from the Bible is David and Bathsheba, right? You know that story. Here's old David. It's late. He's up on his roof checking out the stars, right? He's looking over, you know, walking along the roof of his house, and he looks down, and there's Bathsheba. It's a beautiful woman. She's just bathing, and, and there's the moment of temptation. What will he do? Will he go, whoa? Or will he go, hmm? You know, you know can I get the binoculars here? You know, and that's what he did. He said, oh, yeah, get the binoculars. And, and, he, and he started that, that momentum in his mind. And, and the next thing you know, it leads to an affair, and then that leads to a deception and murder. You know the whole story. And, and that's what happens. Satan just wants us to get out of control, and that force is let loose, and it's incredibly destructive in our lives. And that's what Satan wants. He just wants a little extra look at the person in the office, the little extra look at the neighbor, the little extra look, click, click on the Internet, and that's all it takes, and we're off and running. And so we need righteousness in this area of our lives as well. I recently, um, my wife and I sort of made a decision about this aspect of our lives, one dimension of it. You know, we, we don't watch a lot of television. Uh, just, I don't have time, actually. <laughs> but, but, uh, and so we don't have a lot of shows we follow. The only show that we really followed recently was uh, CSI. I don't know if you guys know Crime Scene Investigators. I mean, great show. It's about forensic science. You know, these, these nerdy scientists go to the crime scene and they, they look at all the evidence and they try to figure out who done it. And so it's this kind of science who done it thing, which, which is really fun. You're trying to figure out the mystery all along and looking at forensic science. And uh, the, the characters are great. And of course, it's filmed in a wonderful city where I grew up. So um, I, I, I really enjoy this show. But then, you know, every once in a while, we'd be watching the show. And every couple, so often, half dozen episodes, there'd be this storyline that was just very sexually explicit. You know, and we'd be like, oh, why'd they do that? It's a cool show. They don't need that to make it interesting. It's just a cool show. You don't need all that stuff. And then, you know, it happened again. And, and at least from our perspective, someone else might disagree, but it's just sort of our subjective sense that that, that started happening more and more, that, like, the storylines became increasingly filthy. And, you know, we're like, well, they did that? What? Huh. And so this, this fall before the new season started, because, you know, that's an exciting time when the seasons are going to start in September. Um, you know, Jennifer said to me, she said, do you, do you really want to watch that show anymore? She says, I, I think I'd rather not. And I was like, you know, that's fine with me. I, I really don't need to. Because the purpose it had served, which was, you know, turn off your brain, just have a little entertainment and relax after a long week, you know, it was starting to lose its effect because of all this other stuff. And so why am I telling you this story? Am I trying to tell you that if you're a Christian, you can't watch CSI? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not trying to give you the approved Baptist church list of shows you can watch. <laughs> Unless you'd like that, and I can get that for you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to create some legalistic rule system. But, but I'm just, I guess I'm just trying to say how I'm trying to work this out in my own life. That I don't need those extra things in my brain to serve as handlebars for the devil. So he can, you know, steer me around. I just want 
You know, and it just got to that point where I was like, I don't need this. It's just not really worth it, the, the risk and reward thing. And so, so we stopped watching it. Because I, I don't want there to be a hint of sexual immorality in my life. And this is a constant struggle, especially in our hyper-sexualized culture. So we need the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, last one, moving on here, with our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We need to be ready. If we're going to stand firm against the devil, you've got to have good shoes on. Very important if you're going to be in a fight. Good footing. Those of you who, who are like to fight, you've got to have good footing. Because if you fall down, you're done. So you've got to be able to, you, know, you need good boots if you're going to be in the army. You need your feet fitted the right way. And then you're ready to fight. So what is it that gives us the readiness? What is, gives us the preparedness? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You all know the gospel. The gospel is the good news. It's the good news that even though I'm a sinner and have turned away from God, that God still loved me. Instead of judging me and destroying me like I actually deserve, God sent Jesus to die for me. That on the cross, Jesus took the punishment that I deserved so I could get off scot-free. That's the good news, that I could be forgiven through Jesus. In fact, look at Ephesians chapter 1. Just turn to one more text as we look at the gospel here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Paul says, and you also were included in Christ when... All right, stop there. Okay, when, was, when were you included in Christ? When did, you, when did you become a Christian and become part of God's family? When you were christened as an infant? When you completed confirmation classes? When you started attending that Baptist church? When were you included in Christ? How did you become a Christian? Look, at, don't take my word for it. Look right here in the Bible, verse 13. And you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and having believed, you're marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Salvation is through hearing the good news of Christ and then believing in him and trusting in him for salvation. That's how we come to Christ. And, and you know, why am I highlighting this? Well, because I think there's, there's a, a great misconception that's very common out there about how a person is ready for heaven. How do you know if you're ready? How do you know if you're ready for the spiritual war? How do you know if you really are a Christian? And, and the, the, the common thing I, I hear when I talk to people is it's be a good person and believe in God. You know, if, you're, if you're nice, if you're decent, you believe in God, that's good enough. In fact, this week it was so funny, I was writing the sermon and I talked to a lady this week and she found out I was a, a pastor and it didn't scare her away. She talked it was nice. And so we, we talked about church and things. And, and she says, you know, I have this daughter. And she, this lady goes to church. She goes, I have this daughter who's going to this church. And she's always telling me now that, that I have to be saved by believing in Jesus. And she goes, I, I, I'm so tired of hearing that. She says, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good person, she said. She says, I, I, I run a charity with my husband. And, and, you know, we, we really help out with people. We've always thought it's about being good. And, and I go to church. I've gone to church for a long time. You know, so I don't know. This whole thing about being saved, believing in Jesus. It, and so that, that was her thing. And I said, well, I said, you know, you look at the Bible and just read what the Bible has to say. The theme throughout the Bible is that you have to believe in Christ to be saved. That, 
that, that we're not good enough. And, and she was like, oh, and then the conversation kind of went from there. But, but I, I say that because I think that's a common misconception. It's a common lie that the devil tells us in our culture that if I'm just trying to be nice and try to love God, or not even love God, just believe in God, that that's enough. But, but both of those are false. It's false that we can be good enough. I didn't say this to the woman, but she's not a good person. I'll say it to you. You're not a good person. <laughs> you're like, what do you say? Oh, you're not. Well, I mean, you're better than the person next to you in the pew. But you're not, you're not good. In other words, in the absolute scale, in the Kelvin scale of, of goodness, absolute, none of us are good. You know, we're, you know, we're maybe better than the other, and maybe a little bit, I'm a little better than you, but God is like, he's holy. See, God isn't nice. He's not good. He's holy. And he demands holiness. Heaven is a place of holiness. And none of us can, can say we've, we've reached that. I certainly haven't. We are sinners. I mean, let's be honest. We do things our way, not God's way. That's our natural impulse. So we, we're, none of us are good enough, nor can church save us. Church is a good thing, but, but church is where you go to learn about salvation. The church can't save you. There's no ritual we can do here to save you. The Baptist church can't save you. The Catholic church can't save you. The Nazarene church can't save you because none of the churches died for you. Only Christ died for sinners. It's only through Christ that we can be saved. There's this uh, story I, I, I read. I, I don't know if I told you this before, so bear with me if I did. Um, it was about a preacher named uh, D.M. Stearns. And Stearns was preaching one time, and after he got finished preaching, this, uh, this fellow came up and said, you know, Mr. Stearns, thank you for preaching, but I really didn't like your sermon. And he said, oh, sorry, you know, what, what did I say? And he says, well... I, you're always talking in your sermon about Jesus as a Savior, that Jesus died to save sinners, and that we're sinners and we need Jesus to save us. He goes, this is outdated stuff. We need not Jesus as a Savior. He says, but today it's really about Jesus as example, because it's just about being a, a good person. And so if, if you're a good person, then what you really need Jesus for is a moral example. He's an example of how to be a good person, and we need to follow his example. And Stern said, well, if... If I started preaching Jesus as an example, would you, would you follow him? And the guy said, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And, and so he says, okay, well, let's start right here. What about 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22? In fact, if you want to, you can, you can turn there. Look, this is an amazing verse. 1 Peter 2, 22. If you don't want to turn there, I'll just read it to you. Listen to this. It says of Jesus, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Stearns looked at the man, he said, can you follow that example? And the guy said, well, I mean, of course not. I mean, you know, who can? Everyone's fallen short here and there. And, you know, I obviously have sinned and made mistakes in my life. And Stearns said, well, in that case, you don't need an example. You need a savior. Every single one of us, and especially me, needs a Savior. Because we cannot get to God by building any human ladders that we make up. We must take hold of the ladder that God has sent down from heaven, which is Jesus Christ. And if you have Christ, then you're ready. Because it's only through Him that we can be saved. And that's the message of Christmas. Not be good, be nice, but trust Christ, 
and be saved. And so let me just ask you, as we depart and, and go our ways here, do you have Christ? Do you have him in your heart? Or are you trusting in some flimsy human thing, whether it's good deeds or religiosity? Or have you come to that place of holding on to Christ and falling in love with Jesus and letting him be your all in all? Oh, Lord God, we desire to stand firm. We desire to follow Christ. But we just confess that, that if it's up to us and our strength, we're going to get blown away in the spiritual war. And so, Lord, we need the strength that you can provide. We need you to clothe us through the Holy Spirit with truth. Lord, make us a truthful people. Continue to purify South Shore Baptist Church and make this a place where the truth is spoken between members, where the truth is taught and lived out. God, I pray, make us righteous. Let, let us be zealous for holiness. Not, not self-righteous or holier than thou, but just holy. Help us to be just righteous. Help us to hate sin. Not looking down our noses at other people, but just fleeing sin like as if we were fleeing a volcano because we want holiness in heaven and righteousness. Help us to see the beauty of purity and the ugliness of sin. And finally, Lord, I pray that we would all be ready, that everyone here would have Christ. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't have Jesus or wonders if they do, Lord, would you just speak to their hearts this morning? Would you let them know that, yes, they are a sinner, but there is forgiveness in Christ. And may they cling to Christ for salvation. Lord, do this work in their hearts. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.